Good morning. Sorry to interrupt all the lively dis- discussion that is uh, commencing, uh, but welcome to Bible study this morning. A special welcome to those listening in the St. Louis area on AM 850, KFUO, and worldwide on KFUO.org. As is our usual practice, we are going to be looking at the lectionary readings for the upcoming Sunday, which, if you can believe it or not, is already the last Sunday of Advent. Um, it always seems like one of those seasons that, you know, you see on the horizon, it feels like we're waiting forever for it, which is maybe appropriate. And then when it comes, it's very quick. It's four weeks. And uh, very shortly, uh, we'll be in the great season of Christmas and then Epiphany. But uh, before we begin, I should announce we do have handouts on the gym bleachers, if anyone did not grab one and would like to do so. Um, And as a second announcement, just as a reminder, if anyone would like to attend, we have another great music at St. Paul's Christmas event uh, this evening at 4 o'clock in the sanctuary, and registration is required. Um, It's a great service, a lot of our favorite uh, Christmas hymns, and so um, if you are interested in attending that, again, registration is required, but that is 4 p.m. tonight in our uh, sanctuary. So to begin with, we're going to look at the gospel lesson first, and the gospel lesson really gets everything uh, started, and you'll see the theme here, this is not one of those weeks where you're going to be looking at it and wondering, so what's the theme? (laughs) The theme is is pretty apparent right away, and it's very appropriate given the season. It's what you probably would guess um, the theme of uh, selected pericopes might be on the Sunday before Christmas. So we begin in uh, Luke chapter 1, and starting at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, one of the first questions that comes up usually is, so, okay, the sixth month, what is meant by that? In the Greek, it is literally just the words sixth month. It's not a specific month that they named. And so some people, there are some debate amongst commentators Um, and theologians as to which month is it, It, which calendar, for example, um, does it refer to. And there's a few options. You have the Jewish calendar. You also have potentially um, the Greek calendar as well. And Luke is, of all the gospel writers, um, seen to probably be writing to a Greek audience. So it's very possible that that's one of the options. But then there's a third option that sometimes we don't always think about that we'll see uh, just a little bit uh, later on in the reading. But there's another person um, by which six months could apply. And so I don't want to spoil, uh, spoil that too much right away, but just kind of keep that in the back of your mind that, you know, we have some educated guesses as to what um, the sixth month may be, but the important thing to remember is what is about to happen. So the angel Gabriel is sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, what's interesting here is uh, you get almost just like a stream of consciousness set of facts. And why that's interesting is Luke is a very detail-oriented guy. And you'll notice throughout this lesson, um, for a guy who's very detail-oriented in the rest of his gospel, there doesn't seem to be a ton of physical descriptive details in this pericope. So if he's not wanting us to focus on the, you know, kind of the the physical details, the surrounding images, what the setting may be, what perhaps is the thing he wants us to focus focus on in this pericope? 
Why would you maybe, if you were detail-oriented, why would you not include details? Yeah. We're wanting to focus on who, and in particular, what they say. Yes, exactly. That the focus of this pericope is on the words. You know, he could have written, the angel Gabriel came, and it was majestic, and it was, you know, you have this big picture of what it looked like that an angel came uh, to Mary, and you notice we don't have any of that. In fact, um, we don't even have necessarily what time of day it is, where she's at, what the situation is. No, the importance here is the words that the messenger from God, the angel, is going to give to Mary, and then what Mary says in response. Uh, so the, the first three verses of the pericope are really just setting a factual, kind of bare-bones setting for us to think, okay, Nazareth, angel, comes to, ver- to uh, Mary, who is a virgin and betrothed to this man, Joseph. Verse 28, and he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now this is the second of two times where we'll hear about the favor that Mary has. And this is an interesting thing because it makes us um, examine what does it mean that Mary is favored? Unsurprising, maybe, next week, the hymn of the day, not to be a spoiler, but it's the angel Gabriel from heaven came. And the end of that hymn is the refrain, most highly favored lady, Gloria. What does that mean? And of course, um, we can probably jump right away and say, well, didn't Luther say we ought not to pray to Mary? And that is absolutely correct. It does not mean that Mary is a god amongst peoples. She is not. But what does it mean that she is a favored one? Well, the first thing is that uh, this is something that God has bestowed upon her. Mary is not chosen because she was the most well-behaved in grammar school. (laughs) Right? Uh, And that's an important thing to remember, that this concept of favor being bestowed, and we'll see this even with David a little bit in Nathan's proclamation to David in our Old Testament reading, but favor being bestowed, it's something that God grants, not something that you earn. So maybe Mary was a very well-behaved child. Maybe she misbehaved greatly as a child. We're not told that. And so we need to be careful um, in making the assumption that highly favored or that she found favor with God meant that she was perfect. Rather, the focus is, again, that God has shown his favor to her, that God granted his favor to Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Um, this is really, it's a really interesting set of words in the Greek because that word trouble means greatly confused, which is understandable, right? I mean, if this happened to any of us, I'd probably be, we'd probably say, yeah, we were greatly troubled by this. Uh, it's not that she was necessarily um, negative against it in, in the sense that sometimes when we use that word troubled, we can think of it, you know, it really troubled me that this happened in the sense that I was really bothered by it. Um, It's more that she was confused. She was unsure of what this could be. And then that phrase, what sort of greeting uh, this might be, trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be, uh, is really kind of what in the world is going on in the Greek. She's trying to figure out what in the world 
just happened? What is before me? What is this? And it's understandable. Um, I mean, I don't think any of us would say that we'd just be like, oh, yeah, now this makes sense. Gabriel, that's right. Here we go. Right? This is a great surprise. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Again, that phrase, do not be afraid, uh, that's typically what we hear of when angels appear to anybody. Right? And even the shepherds, you know, do not be afraid. I bring you good tidings of great joy that will be for all people. The typical response when you see an angel of the Lord is to be afraid, to be scared out of your mind, to be in awe or even um, amazement at what you are beholding. It's an indication that this is not um, just another normal earthly thing, that this is something from God. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And again, that's the same as verse 28, that God has bestowed favor upon you. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So that word conceive um, is the exact same word that's used to describe um, Elizabeth. And this is one of the meanings of this word. In Greek, it's uh, sun lumbano, and it can be to seize but it also can be to conceive. And so there's several instances uh, in the New Testament where we see this uh, word used to uh, discuss uh, conception of a child. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Uh, Yesun in the Greek. And Jesus is Yeshua. Or maybe even in English, how we'd sometimes say Joshua. The word Joshua, or the name Joshua, in the Hebrew um, and in the Greek is the same as Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean we should go around and change all of our prayers to say Joshua. It just means when we're looking at this, to remember that um, this is a particular name that God bestowed upon his son. And what does, does anyone know what uh, Joshua or uh, Yeshua means. Sometimes we cover this. I know in foundations we're going through the book of Joshua, and so it probably got brought up. Well, yes, yes, it's exactly. It's God saves, or God will save us, or He will save us. So God saves. Right? So you shall call His name Jesus, and He will be great. And in Greek, it's literally mega. A mega guy, a big, great person. And you will be called, and he will be called, sorry, son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now I'm going to pause kind of talking about those verses right there because our Old Testament reading is that covenant that God makes with David. And so we're going to kind of be going back to that a little bit. But we should immediately, this would conjure up in the, the minds of those who heard this proclamation, that covenant that God made with David. Because that very thing is what God promises to David. In fact, not to jump ahead, but if you look at your Old Testament reading, the last verse of that Old Testament reading, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 
So there is a direct connection here. It doesn't get much more direct than this. Not only is it a quotation, but the angel even says, um, he will have the throne of his father, David. So Mary says to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the literal, word, this is a good English translation, but the literal phrase is, how is this? Because I have never known a man. And that word known uh, means in an intimate marital setting. Um, not to try and be too crass, but I think we can all uh, see why virgin is an appropriate translation then of the phrase, I've never known a man. So this is Mary's first response. Okay, here's this angel, and she's wondering, how can this be? And then he gives this proclamation, and she says, well, how can this proclamation be? Because I have never known a man. So the angel says to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child uh, to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. It is because it is because of God, because God will do this in you, and it is therefore because God will do this in you that the child will be holy, that is set apart. And again, we see right away that Christ is the anointed one. That's what Christ, the word Christ means, that Jesus is the Christ, means he is the anointed one, the one that is specified for this um, purpose. And of course, we've been going through in our Advent series the, the Jesse tree, and uh, we, in the first week, looked at the Garden of Eden where this promise first occurs, that God is going to send one, an offspring of a woman, and he will crush the head of Satan, and Satan will crush his heel. I know in our English translations we use bruise, but Pastor Thomas rightfully mentions literally crush or pulverize. And I always like that image a little bit better because uh, it's great to think about Satan's head being pulverized. That's a... That's a one of, the, one of those happy images, I think, we can think of around this, that this birth, this virgin birth, this promised Messiah, this anointed one, he is the one that was promised of old, all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And behold, in verse 36, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. And here's why some commentators would say that sixth month is in reference to Elizabeth. That we, um, some would say, no, it's, in re- you know, it's both and. That it's both the sixth month of the calendar, but um, it's also in relation to Elizabeth. But some would say, no, it's only in relation to Elizabeth that we see that sixth month at the start of this pericope. But we're, uh, Mary is told that your Relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son and is in the sixth month. In verse 37, uh, for nothing will be impossible with God. There's a lot to unpack in those two verses. One, uh, what's Mary's question again? How can this be? And the angel says, well, if you're wondering how this can be, or if you're wondering if God has the power to do it, you should know your relative Elizabeth who was barren, is now at a very old age. She is with child. So don't doubt that God can make it happen. Um, that Israel, is, or Elizabeth, sorry, impossible pregnancy is, is sort of a foreshadowing to this impossible pregnancy. And then that phrase, uh, for nothing will be impossible with God. It's interesting, uh, this phrase in its entirety occurs in three spots. One, 
when Jesus talks about uh, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples say, well, how is that? And Jesus says, well, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. This is uh, the second time, or I should say, that we see this phrase used. But then the connection is really interesting because the first time it is used is all the way back in Genesis. And it's after Sarah laughs at the promise that God will give her a son. And she is told, with God, nothing is impossible. And so again, that miraculous birth foreshadows the most miraculous birth of Christ, the most impossible birth of Christ, who would come to save uh, the world from their sin. And another thing to note about verse 37 is uh, that word nothing that's, I understand why they, they translate it that way, because that's a common phraseology, the way to, just to kind of phrase it that way, but in, it literally in the Greek is no word. And why that's important is uh, what the angel is saying is nothing I say, no word that I say is impossible with God. And that statement is a reminder that God's word is performative. We need an example of that. Again, we can go all the way back to Genesis 1. What does God do? He says, let there be light, and his word is performative, and there was light. Let there be, and there is. When God says, let this happen, it does. And so God's word um, is action-based. It's the exact opposite of empty words, right? It literally does the very thing it says it will do, just through the power of the word. Uh, So no word, no word, no saying will be impossible with God. And verse 38, and Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Uh, I am the servant of the Lord. Meaning I am, if he wants to use me, so be it. It, literally, it's a bond servant, someone who is bound um, to servitude. And so here Mary is confessing that I, I will be the Lord's servant. Um, and then uh, says, let it be. And of course, there we get the Beatles song. Um, not to talk about the Beatles too much right before Christmas. But uh, Mother Mary says to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. This is where, um, at least there's some debate, but that's where a lot of people think he got the praise for that song, uh, Paul McCartney. But more important than that, promise, last Beatles reference, uh, more important than that is her confession. You know, we pray every Sunday, thy will be done. And I always talk about, I think that's probably the toughest petition in the Lord's Prayer. Um, that we don't mind <laughs> when we pray for God's daily bread to come to us, but to pray thy will be done is really, I think, the toughest petition for us to pray in the Lord's Prayer earnestly and honestly. Uh, We could do it kind of cavalierly or without thinking about it, but when we think about what that means, um, it's a tough one for us because we want to have control so much. And yet, what a great confession Mary makes, uh, essentially saying, thy will be done. Let it be to me according to your word. And what's interesting there is, again, she quotes back to what the angel said, that no word is impossible with God. It's interesting, you know, you don't ever translate it uh, according to your thing, even though they use the word nothing. 
No, it's in reference to that word that you said um, is not impossible. And again, just another kind of interesting linguistic aspect to it is that uh, that word impossible is not having the power to be completed, literally. It's uh, the word power affixed with the anti or ah uh, preposition, which means uh, unable. You know, if, if to have the power to do something is to be able to do it. Do not have the power to do something is to be unable to do it. And so the angel says nothing will be unable to be completed according to the word of the Lord. And Mary says, then let it be to me as according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I mean, this is really a, a powerful uh, section of Scripture, a, a miraculous section of Scripture. This is the fulfillment. This is the declaration of the who, where, why, and when God's going to fulfill the promise he gave all the way back in the Garden of Eden. The promise he made to Abraham and to David and to Moses. The thing the people had been waiting for, the thing the world depended on, this is the revelation of what it is. And while obviously the most uh, miraculous thing is that it came to be as the angel said, this is still something we shouldn't just disregard as, oh, this is a nice preamble before Christmas, before we get to the shepherd and the wise men and all the stuff we really want to hear in December. Um, that this truly is a special moment, not only in the life of Mary, not only in the life of uh, the people of Israel, but in the entire history of the world. This is the proclamation of the realization, the revelation of God's promised Messiah, God's promised Savior. And so while it is just before Christmas, and while I do know, and I fully admit, and I'm right there with you guys, right? We want to focus on Christmas. We're so close. It's still... Um, important that we remember how special this is, that God um, does exactly what he says he's going to do. Um, so at this time, I'll open it up if there are any questions on Luke 1. Yes. It, exactly. In fact, um, you know, when we read Lord of Sabaoth, for example, that's Lord of, of host angelic armies, uh, anytime there's a depiction of an angel or of uh, what those angelic armies are, people are scared out of their minds. And it is true. The question was, you know, angels aren't exactly always depicted as these super lovable uh, individuals. And it's very true that in some ways we've kind of Hallmark card uh, imaged away what the depiction of angels in the Bible really are. Um, that it's not just a sweet face with a halo and wings and it's all kind and gentle. But often at first glance, people either think they're going to die because that's how scared uh, they are and that's how uh, clearly evident it is that what they are seeing has the power to kill them or they are scared witless that they're almost they, they don't know what to do next because of how terrified they become so uh, in some ways uh, you know angels are have been kind of uh, I don't want to say weakened but we how we've depicted them, especially in media and, you know, greeting cards and cartoons, doesn't really do what the Bible says justice for what it means that an angel would come and speak to Mary. Um, 
And of course, uh, interestingly enough, what, does, what happens when Mary tells Joseph that this angel came? He said, well, no, that's not true. I'll divorce you quietly. And then Gabriel comes to him. And, what, and he clearly is powerful enough for Joseph to know, oh, okay, this guy means business. This wasn't a fluke. Um, and a third connection to Gabriel's, who else does Gabriel appear to in Luke 1? There's one other person. If you look in Luke 1, and we'll look, uh, I'll try and find it quickly here. Uh, Luke, if you have your Bibles, open up to Luke 1. And we read, There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. Yeah. Now, um, again, what's Zechariah's response? He is troubled when he sees him. In fact, I think, if I remember correctly, he, um, oh, yes, fear fell upon him. And the angel said, do not fear. <laughs> again, it's a reminder that angels, what are the first, the first words of God they usually have to give to people? Do not be afraid. Yes, Ruth. Yeah, and usually that's how they are depicted. That, so the question was that they, we have seen in instances, either, even in Genesis, I know we seem to have a lot of connection to Genesis today, but that's partly because that's where God first establishes this promise that is fulfilled on Christmas, that in Genesis, uh, with Abraham, for example, angels come and they appear in heavenly form. Um, and even uh, Jacob, right, he wrestles with a man, and then he realizes that the man is an angel of the Lord, and then he becomes afraid that there is, an, uh, there is an ability for them to um, walk about amongst um, people, in the old, especially in the Old Testament we see this, but then when their full form, or uh, I'm trying to think of what the right word would be, but their, their natural state maybe is that their full heavenly state. Yeah, the, the depiction is uh, not only massive, but terrifying warrior-like uh, images. And I'm always thought, you know, I'm, I'm from Orange County, I'm a big... Angels fan in baseball, and I always thought, you know, we should have a mascot that looks like that, and, you know, a big, giant, <laughs> scary warrior, but eh, I guess we'll keep the halos uh, for now. Uh, no, that's a great point, and like I said, this is just a point, especially as we consider our devotional life as we approach Christmas, um, and, and as we prepare to rejoice in the world's uh, Savior that was given to us, don't discount the fact that this is a very special a moment in the history of our own lives. That this is when our Savior was proclaimed to his mother. And, and that's something that, uh, like I said, yes, it's miraculous. Yes, it doesn't make any natural sense. Um, and this is really where, unfortunately, you, you may even hear people say, well, you know, the word uh, virgin in the New Testament doesn't just mean virgin. It could be just a young woman of betrothal age. And while that is true, you notice specifically that in the Greek, it, you know, they, uh, it's not the word for virgin, parthenol, parthenoi, sorry, that is used up above, but it's I did not know a man, and in a particular way. So there can be no denying that this is a virgin in the sense um, that we normally think of, that this isn't just a young woman, but truly this is a miraculous, never before seen, never again seen birth. Correct, yes. And, and you will sometimes hear arguments in that, in, for that, that you know it doesn't have to be a, a, a virgin, that whole thing. It could just be a young woman. And 
That's why I bring up the fact that the literal Greek is, I did not know a man. Not to, you know, get crass or to have any sort of uncomfortable discussion, but to be very blunt and say, no, this is why it's so miraculous. Um, and there should be no doubt um, that it is only through the power of God, through the Holy Spirit, that such a thing could occur. All right. So that's Luke 1. <laughs> um, now let's go to 2 Samuel 7. And this, again, uh, is why uh, it's going to be very clear why this is included with that section from Luke 1. Uh, seven, Samuel, or 2 Samuel 7, verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord has gi- had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, and I'm just going to pause there. Um, I know I've probably mentioned it a few times in this class, but what is one of the things rest is in the uh, ancient Near East? It's a luxury. To be able to rest means you don't have to fear for your life. The reason people had to move around a lot is so that they didn't get attacked. So for the Lord to give David rest from his enemies means uh, David has been given a great gift. It's not just, oh, he got to you know, sleep in on a Saturday morning. This is a huge luxury. And who's, um, ca- or who caused it to be? It's clear the Lord gave him rest from all the enemies that would surround him. And the king, King David, said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. So immediately we're thinking of the tabernacle. And, and uh, that's not the necessarily focus of this passage, but it's important to remember that that's where um, the worship life of Israel was centered still, was around the tabernacle. And Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel who I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you want, went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name like the name of great ones of the earth. Now, I read all of that in one big chunk because that is all one thought. And it's important, it, again, it's kind of like a, a preface. Like, this is uh, God telling the prophet Nathan to remind David of all that the Lord has done, including bringing the people out of the land of Egypt, including, um, you know, uh, being with them, speaking to their rulers, the judges, the rulers. Uh, and that particularly, whoops, particularly for David, he took him from being a lowly shepherd boy, right? Remember, as Jesse, he was the youngest of Jesse's sons, and almost an afterthought when Samuel came to Jesse, uh, the thought was kind of, well, yeah, it's, it's going to be one of these other guys, right? I mean, the, the young guy, no, there's no way. And yet God took that lowly shepherd boy, that young shepherd boy, quote-unquote, at the bottom of the pecking order, and he rose him up to be prince over the people, to be ruler over the people, uh, that I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. 
And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And you notice it stops past tense right there and moves to future tense. That this is what God's done. And now I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares that to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now, why did I kind of stop there? Again, this is two chunks, right? We have what God has done and now what God will do. And you notice uh, one thing that's interesting is at the end of it, um, what was the original question that Nathan's supposed to bring to David or request from God? Build him a house. But then what does God say he will do for David at the end of verse 11 there? Build him a house, right? And in fact, uh, who would complete the temple? Would it be David? No, it'd be, it'd be Solomon, his son. And so you have this uh, kind of dual reality, or not dual reality, a uh, dual discussion going on. What you are going to do for me and what your family actually is going to complete for me, your son, you won't be able to finish it. Um, and what I will do for you, David. And so you have um, God declaring his promises unto David. And really it's... It, I understand why, because there's so much packed into it, why they don't include 12 through 15 here. Elsewhere in the lectionary, when we do read 2 Samuel, it is uh, included. I, I would encourage you, if you are maybe looking at some verses to study uh, this week, uh, maybe just make a note to study uh, 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 15, because there's so much packed into it. And in some cases, there's probably too much packed into it, which is why on top of everything else with this pericope, they don't include that. Um, but it's a really great couple of verses. Yes. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So the, the comment was just made that uh, the, uh, the full Second uh, Samuel 7, 1 through 17 is included in the Advent devotional for today. Um, is that through the Treasury of Daily Prayer for which? Oh, the portals of prayer? Oh, the Jesse Tree one. Yes. Sorry. The Jesse Tree one. Okay, perfect. Yeah, that, so if you have those Jesse Tree devotionals, um, it, it is the reading for today. Oh, that worked out perfect. <laughs> but yes, it, there's a lot in there, including, you know, a house cannot contain me. And again, that comes back to even um, the issue that you see surrounding not only Jesus, but also Stephen. For those of you who have been doing Living Way, one of the things that came up this last week was uh, Stephen said, essentially, um, I... In going, or that God doesn't just dwell in this temple. And uh, at that time in the first century, just after Jesus' death, the focus had gone off of God and gone on to keeping the physical building. They forgot that very phrase that's brought up um, in the rest, uh, or in 2 Samuel 7, uh, 12 through 15 section. But moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house forever. And then in verse 16, we get that promise that the angel relayed to Mary, which is uh, exactly why they make sure to include 16 specifically. And your house 
and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Uh, And really the sense here is that there is a dynasty from your midst. That from your, when you're talking about your house, your, uh, you could say line might be a way to understand it. That from your line will be forever a throne and it shall be established forever. And so when Angel says this uh, to Mary, that he, uh, if we go back to your gospel reading, uh, verse Let's see, verse 33, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Oh, and just before that in 32, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. This is exactly what the angel is referring to. And of course, what is what David receives? Um, We read, it is the word of the Lord came to Nathan. And remember, I brought up that word that no word is impossible. There's a connection, of course, between what God says, the word that comes to his people in the Old Testament, and the word that is fulfilled in Christ. And who does John say, what's one one way John uh, references Jesus, especially in John 1? That in the beginning was the the word. And so you have, again, this... um, (laughs) indication that the performative word of God is not only at work, but it's doing exactly what God promised, even back to David, even back to the Garden of Eden. You could easily say that the word of the Lord declared to uh, the serpent, or God's word to Abraham was this, that Jesus is the word to God's people, physically incarnate, the salvation, uh, the sacrifice given to forgive them, of your, their sins. So, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And of course, in both uh, Greek and in Hebrew, that word forever is truly eternity. Uh, just an unending time. It will never cease to be. Uh, and so that's, again, what you see in both 2 Samuel 7 and Luke 1. Yes, Question. Yes, um, that, you know, the house and line of David. But really, when I was meaning more the line, when it says, and your house and your kingdom. Yes, that this, the, the, in, the implication is it's not just a physical building. That, again, and that's based also on what's said in that section that we don't have. But that phys- it's not just a physical building. There's not going to be an, a nice castle or a nice palace that just stays there forever. But that there will be... Um, a, and really a king of kings, right? Jesus is known as the king of kings. There is going to be a kingdom, a dynasty established forever. Which is why it's so troubling when the Babylonians come and ransack Jerusalem and destroy the temple. Because wait a minute, what promise did God give us? Wait a minute, where does God's word, I thought God's word does what it says. And so that's kind of an interesting uh, point to bring up that After this promise to David, it was not just all flowers and roses until Jesus comes. No, they went through uh, destruction. And so there was a lot uh, of Israel's history where they were wondering how in the world did that covenant, how is that happening because we don't see it. And it's also why in Malachi the people are confused because they think they've figured it out and gotten back to Jerusalem and they've rebuilt the temple. And we read that the presence of the Lord is not in the temple. And they're very upset and very confused. It is 
earth-shattering to them that he would not be back because, again, they're thinking of it being a building, four corners, or, I mean, a few more corners if you add in, you know, side rooms and whatnot. But, you know, they're thinking of it, they're confining it where God's plan, um, the only thing that lasts forever is the kingdom that he has established in his son. And that's why it's important to remember even as... um, Americans and even as people living in St. Louis, right? Eventually, all the buildings we see around us will one day cease to be. All right. Did you have another question, Ruth? Or no? Yes. And and what was the temple? It's where God, the locatedness of God. Of course, where's the locatedness of God in Jesus? Well, in His very being. All right. He is God. And so, uh, yeah, it's a a really important thing to remember again that we we never worship buildings. We never worship, you know, anything other than God himself. And that's uh, what the people forgot and routinely forgot. (laughs) All right. Now we get to Romans, and it's one of the few times you have a Romans reading that is uh, not only this short, and while there's a lot in there, there's there's not a ton we can say about it because it is so short. So usually if you see Romans, you can almost uh, guarantee that that would be probably where we let off because Romans is so rich. Um, But This is the end of Romans, the last three verses of the book of Romans. And it's right after Paul um, gave thanks for a lot of people, said to say hi to a lot of people. And this is how he ends his letter to the Romans. Uh, Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Now I read it all like that because it's one sentence. Paul is kind of known for this. Um, It's one sentence, but there's several key thoughts. So uh, the first three words of verse 25, now to him, and verse 27, you could put that together, right? And so in some ways, and there's an M dash at the end of faith, but there really could be an M dash um, before the word who as well, um, gram- gr- grammatically. Uh, so now to him. Well, who is the him? Again, that's answered in verse 27. Uh, the only wise God. <laughs> uh, but what is the point of that big, long um, kind of side conversation or side sentence that Paul presents, well, it it describes what that only wise God is able to do. He strengthens us. And you read, it says, according to my gospel, and this may seem problematic at first. Why do you think Paul referred to it as my gospel? He's not saying Paul's gospel in the sense that this is what Paul came up with, but why would he say perhaps my gospel? He's the one that brought it. And also at that time, there was a lot of confusion as to what the actual gospel was. What was the good news in Jesus Christ? So to say, is my gospel, it's not saying, I, Paul, have ownership over it, but it's rather saying, the gospel, the good news, because that's what gospel means, the good news that I brought to you. So you not be confused that it's uh, someone else's good news, or the good news that is still legalistic that says you need to do X, Y, and Z in order for God to love you. No, it's the gospel that I brought to you. And, of course, Paul starts Romans by saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of this good news because it is the power of salvation for all who believe. So according to my gospel, 
and the preaching of Jesus Christ, who was central to the gospel, to the gospel and the good news that Paul spoke to the Romans, Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. And this, of course, is why it's included with this uh, uh, week's readings. Because what is that revelation? That's what we see in the Annunciation, in the angel Gabriel coming to Mary and saying, Behold, favored one, God is with you, and you will have a son, and he will be the son of God. That is the revelation that uh, though God gave his promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David, to Moses, uh, in, even in the garden, uh, no one could have predicted it would have looked the way it did. And so that's why Paul says it's the revelation of the mystery. It's the making cl- clear that which before was covered or concealed. That though God said he would do this, how he'd exactly do it, he didn't say. And this is why it's so interesting going through the Jesse tree, because you see um, God's promise and his deliverance of those promises doesn't always match how or the people who are given those promises aren't always told how he's going to uh, meet those expectations of the promise. Abraham and his son is a great example. You know, God will provide. Well, how is he going to provide, Dad? Because we got fire, we got wood, and we don't got a sacrifice. <laughs> God will provide. Not, you know, Isaac not knowing that Abraham had been told to kill him as a sacrifice. And yet, Abraham knew that God would deliver. In the same way, this mystery that had been for ages, uh, a, a mystery, an unrevealed truth to God's people. They knew he would deliver, but they did not expect him to deliver in the way he did. And yet he delivered exactly on what his promise to the people um, was. His promise to David, his promise to Adam, his promise to Moses, his promise to Abraham and to Jacob. So, uh, it has now been disclosed. And why I want to highlight that word disclosed is because it's literally uh, made clear. So it's not just been disclosed, like it was, you know, it's literally been made clear for the world. That, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. And so it's a great doxological statement. I mean, it's a fantastic one, but you can see pretty clearly why this one in particular is chosen for this upcoming week because the focus is on the revelation, the telling, uh, the clearing up of how this uh, mystery, as Paul puts it, is going to come about. And really, that's the Annunciation. And even in that Annunciation, there's still, some amb- or there's still some mystery, right? Mary's not told, behold, you'll have a son, and he's going to live a perfect life and then be crucified like a common criminal. <laughs> At least that's not what we're told, she's told. Uh, we're told that he'd one day be the Savior, that he would save the people from their sins, but Mary didn't know exactly what that meant. Oh, it would have been too much, probably. It probably would have been a little too much information. But the key here and the key that Paul is bringing out is that God makes it clear when God makes it clear. And what we can joyfully proclaim is that this mystery is now clear to us, that we no longer um, are uncertain of what it means 
that uh, God will deliver his people. We know the deliverance. We no longer have to be um, curious of what it means that the house of David will be, his throne will be established forever, especially in the midst of exile or persecution, because God uh, established his throne, his kingdom, his rule and reign in Jesus Christ. And so it's really a, uh, you know, if we think about Christmas Eve and Christmas Day as the incarnation of Jesus, that this is God come to dwell with man. Uh, you can think of this upcoming Sunday, the 20th, um, the fourth Sunday in Advent, as uh, God's proclamation that I'm going to come to dwell with man. <laughs> right? And while you might say, well, that kind of seems pretty much the same, as a, there's a little nuance there, and that's why I think it's important that we remember that uh, that annunciation is a big deal, that this is the revelation to Mary of what was promised, and soon for the whole world it would be made known uh, what God was going to do for a world of broken, miserable sinners in his son, Jesus. So we've got 10 minutes left, and really about five minutes, because um, we need to wipe down the chairs before I live in stone. So we're going to try and rush through the psalm, but again, uh, be pretty clear as to why this psalm's chosen. And it's interesting, uh, with the, t- the heading, and, and perhaps if you have your uh, Bible with you, you may see this, it's referred to as a masculine of Ethan. Now, masculine is a type of song. Ethan, though, was a musician of David. And also he's mentioned um, as someone that Solomon is wiser than. So if he gets that sort of name recognition, he doesn't come up a lot, but we do know he was probably not only a pretty good musician, but around at the time of David and of Solomon. So uh, we begin with verse 1. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. And that is a direct reference to one of those verses that was not included in the Old Testament reading. That's 2 Samuel 7, verse 15. Um, So again, I'd encourage you, if you're looking for some devotional reading uh, this week, look at 2 Samuel 7, uh, especially 12 through 15, that God will give David and his uh, line his steadfast love forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made my covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So what is this song? What is this song all about? Well, it's about that very reading we had, that covenant that God makes with his servant David. Now, was David, did David um, tell Ethan to write this, this song? We don't know. Perhaps Ethan wrote it on the basis of um, hearing this covenant that God made with David. Or the other possibility is this is Ethan putting to music um, or putting to song or poetry the words that David said um, in response even. That this is, but it's clearly that these, this is all connected to that promise that God gave to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the Holy One. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to the one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant, and with my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. 
My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name, his horn shall be exalted. And I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. And he shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. That phrase, you are my father, again, is a direct quote from 2 Samuel. This time it's 7 verse 14. Again, that same section that's not included, but that is the same, is an, a restatement, a proclamation of what God says, what he gives um, to David. He says, your offspring will call me father. Um, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and, as his, and his throne as the day of heavens. Uh, and so really this is a psalm, a song, a piece of poetry that is focused entirely and solely on the steadfast and complete promise and faithfulness that God uh, promised to give to David, I should say. His steadfast faithfulness and love that he promised to give to David. Steadfast faithfulness and a love, of course, that was uh, revealed eternally in Christ. And so there's the, the simple connection. I said at the start, this isn't a tough one to try and figure out what the theme is, right? The theme today, is, or for next week, is that God will establish his throne, his kingdom, his rule and reign forever through the house of David and the angel Gabriel proclaims that very proclamation, that he, uh, proclaims the revelation of that mystery to her, that she will be with the Son and he will be the Son of God. And so it's a, a great um, reflection, a great time to meditate on the promises God gave uh, to his people and gives to us before we get ready for the joyous celebration of Christmas. Um, and I know we get, we're so close, right? By the time next Sunday rolls around, we'll be five days away. And all we want to do is sing Silent Night and Hark the Herald Angels Sing. But it's a, a great time to focus on um, what God has promised of old. Well, since it's uh, 1025, let us close with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we praise and thank you for the glorious revelation that your son is in our lives. That you have proclaimed your good news for the world that you have forgiven us undeservedly for our sins, that what you promised to do through David, uh, you did, that your word did exactly as it said it would, and that your steadfast love has been shown to us as well. We pray that you continue to guide us and keep us safe during this uh, Christmas season, that you would be with all those who are working in, in the medical professions, keeping us safe, distributing vaccines, and uh, keeping us uh, safe and secure. We pray that you would uh, continue to bless all those who may be traveling this uh, in the upcoming weeks, that they would stay safe and healthy, and that in all things we would do it to the glory of your holy name. And it's in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen.